Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and today I'm joined by one of my oldest and tacticalist friends, Jamie Hamilton. Jamie, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm hopefully not too old that I've lost grasp on um, what the cool kids are talking about in the tactical world. <laughs> But I've resigned myself that I probably have already. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about philosophy a lot as well, and uh, you're definitely never too old for philosophy. So That's true. I'm only just beginning. Yeah. Jamie is a professional football coach. He has a UEFA A licence. He is working as a development academy coach in Scotland right now. And he is also a football writer and has a Medium blog, which he regularly writes interesting things about. And the idea today is to have a little bit of a chat about a piece that he recently put up on his Medium called Vanishing Point, why Pep Guardiola is football's first postmodern coach. Now, the big question that I want to touch on here is, is there any overlap between tactical ideas and philosophical ideas? And if there is, what benefit do we get from scrutinising philosophical ideas as people interested in tactics? But we'll get to that question after we sort of walk our way through the piece a little bit, because you clearly think that there is some benefit from scrutinising the philosophical as a, as a football tactician, given the title of your piece, which is why... Pep Guardiola is football's first postmodern coach. Uh, but before we get into it, let's just talk through the trajectory of the piece itself. So this is the opening line. So in 2022, football has no face. It is faceless, bereft of identity, meaning roots. Football now is a disembodied pastiche of its former self, barely comprehensible, like looking in a mirror and finding only a mirage reflected back. Football now is defined by absence where previously there was substance and permanence, there's now vagary and transience. The game has passed through the glory of its classical and modernist periods and now finds itself bogged down in the barren marshlands of perpetual nostalgia. Now, the thing I want to kick off with is, what do you mean when you say the game has passed through the glory of its classical and modernist periods? And I think this is going to be like a big sort of question that we're going to touch on in this conversation because you are very much reading the history of tactics as a sort of correlate to the history of philosophical development so let's just talk about how you go about doing that and, and what do you mean by saying that the game has passed through the glory of its classical and modernist periods yeah i mean the first thing is, i think you said that i think there's a benefit to uh philosophy and tactical ideas i do think there's, there can be a benefit but i also think it can be a hindrance as well so i i'm not i'm, I'm not gonna fall on on you know just the the positive side there and um, we'll probably get into some of these these things um, what do I mean by the game has passed through its classical and modernist period? Well, to start with, I think that the tone I'm taking there generally, I was jumping, uh, piggybacking rather on Ken Early's article in the Irish Times that was uh, focused on Manchester City's 1-0, I'm trying to remember now, 1-0 win against Chelsea, where they played Man City football and they kind of suffocated Chelsea and Chelsea didn't do very well and Manchester City won 1-0. And Ken Early wrote this piece, which I referenced obviously in, the, in the article, about how it's this this football is almost soulless. You know, it's... Uh, it's and, I, you know, this isn't a new thing with this type of football. I remember Spain back in the, you know, 2010s, 2012 period, there was, you know, people were bemoaning, you know, the boring Spain um, you know, as they just passed, kept the ball for like I don't know, eighty percent of the you know game and didn't do anything with it apparently. And people said, you know, this is actually boring, you know, because this is great football, it's a new way of doing it. And then a lot of the, the, the reaction against that was, no, it's boring. So I guess like Ken, uh, Ken Early sort of is sort of you know that's the narrative he's he's putting forward there that the fans want the blood and thunder. This so and. I think it's a fair comment, right? This is why, and it's not something that I was taking a position in that article, and it's not something that um, 
necessarily wholeheartedly I'm going to you know endorse the get buying. They're certainly taking a position. But I think it's an interesting inquiry, right? Uh, an interesting angle to to come at this from and say, okay, well, what we're we saying here, we're saying this this style of football is actually it's losing a lot of what we have traditionally enjoyed about the game. And I think that's, I can see, I think it's, it's a reasonable argument, right? It's like, there is no, where's the blood and thunder, right? Where's the, where's the, where's the passion, right? <laughs> you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, where's the, uh, he was talking about long range shots, you know, and referencing, you know, how the rise of analytics, statistical analysis is moving us away from like these, what you would call you know, low quality goal chances. Also, all these kind of developments have led us to this uh, style of football, which can be seen as dull, right? As kind of as lacking in 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 character or something, uh, lacking in humanness, and these human elements of passion, desire, these kinds of things, rather than the you know the abstract uh, game theoretical uh, excellence. And I think you know that's that's fair. So we can look at it from that perspective. And say, and also the other thing I think that piled on top of that, which Early also mentions, and I go into as well, and I've written about before, is that this style, in this case certainly, is facilitated by capital, right? It's facilitated by huge amount of, um, well, like hyper commodification, right? Or it's you know these uh, these uh, organizations or states or whoever they are that have you know infinite wealth, and they're able to you know bankroll the development of these football systems or the implementation of them let's say it's, it's it's Guardiola's work I suppose but it's it's being brought into life at this level through that you know those kinds of um, forces and again that sort of drags away right from the what you call the classical idea of football as a representation of the people right of the, of the club of the fan base and it's a manifestation of the values and the ethos right of the of the of the region which the club represents and again, this seems to we're moving away from that to something different. I'm labeling it for some reasons we can go into as, as postmodern, um, maybe because it's the period after modernism, we could say that we're moving into something new. Maybe it's not postmodernism, maybe it's something else. We've already been through postmodernism. I'm, uh, uh, perhaps that's the case, but it seems like this is something new, something different than what we've had before. And I think, yeah, it's... And while I'm, you know, giving it the whole football has no face, uh, <laughs> this kind of thing. I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of artistic license in, the, in that in that kind of tone. But I mean, I love football. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of Guardiola. Uh, absolutely. Uh, even though the piece was, let's say, in many ways critical of it, I, lo- I actually very much enjoy watching Manchester City play. I want to be clear about that. But at the same time, I can see why there could be a you know sizable proportion of, of, of football fans who aren't really into it so i think that's the that's the the general cut and thrust of it yeah so what i'm hearing here then is that you're sort of adopting a reading of philosophical history which was we at one point before the moment that we're at now had this sort of very structured meaningful account of the way that the world functioned and worked and through time the development of philosophical ideas we slowly eroded or evacuated those meaningful ideas away to a point at which when you get to sort of high post-modernity, the question is like, what is meaning? Where do our meanings come from at all? And and you're sort of a, a, applying that to football then where you're saying, yeah, at one point football was this this meaningful 
activity that was undergone for for all these reasons that you mentioned, mainly in terms of localization, the idea of the of the club being precisely that, a, a, a club of members within a community who got together and and were unified in their in their love of the game and what we've ended up now is this influx of capital which has meant that we have raised questions about what it means to enjoy football so that you mentioned ken early's piece but the, the quote that you put in from early was players today are told to avoid shooting from distance by coaches who have studied the stats and know precisely how low the chance of scoring from out there really are teams now aim to work the ball into a better position before pulling the trigger the result is that the long-range screamer arguably the most thrilling sight in football is being optimized out of the game football evolves while the fans pine for what has been lost. So what we're really talking about here is disenchantment, right? Disenchantment of football in in that sense that what we're saying is that the fairy tale elements of, of what we have traditionally told about what football is about have, have just been evacuated away. And we're in this sort of weird hinterland where when it comes to finding meaning in the game, we have to do these sorts of ironic sort of acceptances that we know that as people who work in the game that we are inhabiting this sphere which is at the beck and call of capital as you said before that rich people use it as a vehicle to increase their standing in society or to increase increase the money in that they that they have and we just sort of have to play along with it and we know that the, the fairy tale is false it's just cold hard business at the end of the day is it disenchantment right is that what we're talking about here yeah, I think there's, um, you mentioned Hinterland there, and um, the the title, I, I called it Vanishing Point, and that's from, a I think it's the first chapter of Baudrillard's book on America, it's called Vanishing Point, and he focuses a lot on the desert, right, as a place of disappearance, right, and uh, a, a place where um, almost meaning has been eroding your free, but there's this interesting point, though, where we get into this Hinterland, where maybe meaning is eroded and the meaning's been detached from what we previously thought it was. And while that can be, I think, alienating, yeah, absolutely disenchanting, um, alienating, there is possibly also opportunity there for some kind of reassembly of um, in a new way, which again, I think is a, again, it's a philosophical idea that we can, things can be deconstructed, let's say, but that's not the end of the story. It's not, you know, let's, deconstruct until there's just nothing left and we're just this kind of amorphous blob or something. It's like, but we can deconstruct traditional ideas, concepts, and actually rearrange them and reassemble them in new forms of meaning. But I mean, it's it's easy to say that, but when you are in this moment, like you say, of, you know, we can just keep saying it, this capital, this commodification, it's, um, it's difficult, but I think there is as a coach and someone who loves football and I say, I like, I love, I do actually love Guardiola's football. I think there is meaning in the football and it, and it's, and as a spectator, when I'm not actually coaching, I enjoy actually trying to find ways of finding the meaning in these new expressions of football rather than just taking this kind of, which is actually something I was trying to get across as well in, in the piece. It, hopefully it wasn't too, it was, it had some optimism in it because it's while it yes, it's alienating. There is opportunity to engage with this uh, seemingly random uh, assemblage of things floating around that don't really fit or connect, but then actually try and piece them together in perhaps other ways. And maybe it gets tenuous at this point, but 
something I referenced as well in the piece is that maybe this can be seen in the football itself, that the traditional, like you mentioned, structure obviously is an important thing in like philosophical thought, rigidity, structure. And the, 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 the traditional structure is breaking down and there is this more fluid approach to the actual on-field play. Now, I know that's not a new, new thing. I know we can go, you know, Jonathan Wilson would talk about the Hungarian, you know, hit it, Kuti dropping back in in 1953. And we've always had total football. So it's not, it's not that, you know, the first time we're talking about players rotating, but it seems to me that there is more of an emphasis on fluidity among some, let's say, contemporary practitioners of football mm-hmm. than there has been. So, yeah, I think it is. there is disenchantment. And I think under, an optimist when it comes to football, because I am, I have a deep relationship with it. I'm looking to try and establish a new kind of meaning. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think we should mention at this point that postmodernity in its original guise emerged within the architectural schools, right? So, uh, and, and the idea there was, why is it that we think of styles, architectural styles in, in very distinct ways? And, and what we started seeing was architects using a much more fluid accounts of, of what was proper to go together with other things or even re- removing that idea entirely and just saying why shouldn't i mix art deco with i don't know the, the 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 architecture of the pueblo for example we can do this there's there's nothing stopping us from 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 mixing those those um, boundaries and um yeah interesting as well hearing you talk about jonathan wilson's book because obviously that the title of that book is inverting the pyramid which is obviously a structural inversion right so you take a pyramid and and through time that football formation flips the other way around and I, I guess if you were to write a book about more recent trends then you would have to think of a title which reflected that 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 more fluid uh, approach I mean it, it brings to mind the the language of uh, the rhizomatic right that is what is it's talked about a lot in post-modernity as well yeah I actually wrote I can't remember what piece it was I actually referenced that exactly it was a while ago now about inverting the pyramid and how i mean great book big fan but you're already accepting a rigid structure right with, with that with that metaphor right it's inverting the pyramid okay the, so the pyramid turns but it's a pyramid right it's, it's uh it's straight lines and it's rigid we can all we can do is kind of move this straight line rigid thing around rather than like you say with the idea of rhizomatic thinking with people like deleuze and other post-structuralists there is a yeah, well a rege- an alternative to that um, offered in the sense of yeah much what, what's the word fluid is the word I keep using I suppose formless maybe le- uh, formless not clearly identifiable non-linear different kind a more complex network of relationships between the parts um, of these structures so I think we're getting into now I think one of the main threads of philosophy if we want to apply it to football tactics football theory and we can even take something like wilson's pyramid and say hey let's actually rethink this are we going to maybe we should deconstruct the pyramid like for the next uh, the next stage of this progression because you're going to be trapped inside a, a rigid structure without realizing you're trapped inside the rigid structure right this is the kind of the critique right the critical theorists are going to say look you're in a you're in this system, but you don't see that it's a it's a rigid system because you know it's the a fish doesn't know it's in water type idea, right? It's like you're, it's just so commonplace and everyday that you you 
you haven't seen that you're actually in this structure and behaving as someone who's being influenced by the structure. So by deconstructing it into something else, something more fluid, there's opportunity for, as Deleuze would say, different lines of flight for novelty, right? And this is a big, a big part of, I think, what it concerns. There's a malaise maybe about people, maybe to do with football and society in general, of this idea of it's difficult to find the new and I think that football suffers from that as well a lot. Everything seems to be people want to wear retro shirts, right? And um, clubs will even like put different retro shirts together, so it's like a patchwork of different nostalgic things. People always hark back, and it's very difficult to try and imagine something new, something like what Mark Fisher would talk about. Um, you become so was it? He says it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism is the famous line, but it's to do with novelty, right? And it's and it's, I think, a, a pertinent point. So I think if we do want a genuine novelty, then it is necessary to go through a stage of deconstruction. And, but then rather than falling foul of this you know, chronic alienation, there has to be a, a somewhat optimistic approach to creating new futures, something like that. So again, there's, that's kind of how I try to come from it. Maybe that, you might say, that's naively optimistic. <laughs> No, I'm a big fan of naive optimism, to be honest. I know that I don't often exude that attitude, but at the risk of us ending up with, with just one definition of postmodernity, I thought I would be postmodern in my own approach and, and suggest another angle tangent we could go down, which is uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard's definition of postmodernity as an incredulity towards meta-narratives, which obviously sounds very uh, grand and, and um, uh, uh, deep, I suppose. But as I read that, I, I understand it as being this idea that there isn't a singular narrative out there to which all of our uh, ideas have to conform to. And I think, again, you can you, you can apply that to, to football then, this idea that there is no sort of universal football tactic which works, right? The, the football, the development of football tactics has been, in as I view it, dialectical, by which I mean that, that there is... Com there's competing narratives there there's competing styles by, w by which you can uh, coach your team in and get them uh, playing in a certain way so I think it, it might be interesting to maybe talk a little bit about that at some point but in, in just just to carry on with this idea that that what we're seeing with Guardiola I mean Guardiola definitely has done that sort of patchwork approach to to like, postmodern patchwork approach to football insofar as he he's one of those managers who has gone around and has talked to a lot of managers and and has has built his game model on a lot of different cultures and different approaches to football etc uh, etc et but there is a, something as well about his like desire to move beyond this sort of archaic you took you that, that's a quote from you actually an archaic principle of fixedness um so i'll read the quote out actually you said the city players no longer adhere to some archaic principle of fixedness no more are their positions consistently identifiable they've become blurred players pop up here and there their locations are never set perpetual rotation negates the need for specialization the particular becomes general even the truest of all england's traditional positions the number nine is proved to be false which i think is that's a fantastic fantastic paragraph Jamie it should be said but let's let's go from let's go from there and talk a little bit about this because what we see in Guardiola is an incredulity towards meta narratives right it's this unwillingness to conceive of things the way that they've always been conceived and and view all opportunities as like you said with that optimism that you could actually maybe get somewhere better than the position that we've reached already yeah and i think in my football 
taste, which is something also we can get into this question of taste. I'm drawn to things that seem seem different. Uh, it's not that I would necessarily like this exact passing weekend football or this direct football or transition. It's not necessarily how I, you know, uh, go up and engage with it. But I'm always, and obviously things will land differently with me, but I'm always drawn to the something, the newness um, of, of, of a style of play. And for me, Guardiola is genuinely novel in, in many of his approaches, even from, Back, you know, if we go what two thousand when was it two thousand and eight seven eight was it the first top flight season? Maybe it was yeah, I think something like that. Um, and even just building from the back in the way that he did using the goalkeeper it was pretty revolutionary at that time. Um, and he's certainly had other innovations. We now think of things like inverted fullbacks as being, you know, Postacoglu is actually doing that in Glad- here with Celtic very effectively. I mean. That's probably the, one of the main reasons that Rangers found it so difficult the other night. And for me, Guardiola was certainly one of the first proponents of that that I, that I saw. So, and there's other, and there's, there's other coaches for sure. I'm a big fan of Deserbi at the moment, the Italian coach at Shakhtar, and some of the guys associated with him. The way they're developing the idea of luring the opponent out by the he has a defender, Brazilian defender called Marlon at Shakhtar. I don't know if you've seen much of them play, but Marlon will actually just stand on the ball like motionless with his foot on the ball in this kind of provocative stance for quite a long period of time. They actually kicked off against Real Madrid. He did this, the ball went straight back to Marlon in the Champions League group game. And the first thing he did was just put his foot on the ball and almost like beckoning Benzema to come towards him. And I had not seen it before. So I think, wow, that's cool because it's a different way of doing it. It's not always going to be effective, but there is an, an aspect of, and I think a lot of this comes from the coaches. We're going to get into. We can again. We can get into this. Some will emerge from the players, and it probably and it's dialectical again in that sense. And yeah, to get these ideas, these novel footballing ideas, to be manifested on the field at a high level of competitiveness and pressure and all and all those kind of things, is genuinely exciting to me when I watch it. And I think, wow, I've got to have some courage to do these new things. Because it's it's easy to go with the crowd, right? I mean, it's, it's general wisdom, uh, you know, to step outside and try something radical when it really matters is, I think, worthy of applause most of the time. Uh, I'm not saying all the time, but that's what I'm drawn to anyway. And um, so, yeah, Guardiola has always, for me, embodied something of that. He, he, people, but of course, the flip side is people say the classic one is you know Champions League knockout rounds. He overthinks it, right? He tinkers too much. It's like, I mean, that's a narrative, right? We go up to the, the you know the leotard. I mean, I mean the, the, the criticism of leotards, there is no meta narratives. Is that that is itself a meta narrative? I know we can do that, stupid game, but like, yeah. But I agree. With, like generally speaking, it is much more of a multiplicity, and you know people want to have a go at Guardiola for overthinking his team and tinkering his team I mean that's fine but you know for me it's that's actually what makes him so great is his willingness to try new ideas uh, on a big stage yeah and um, I think we should maybe talk a little bit about structure because I think the the concept of post-structuralism is something that is quite informative in your in your thinking as well again just a final 
I think it's the final paragraph of the piece is Guardiola's city have no spine. This used to be an insult. They are invertebrate. The team's limbs dislocated from their sockets. This is a football that has moved beyond traditional notions of structure. It is post-structural. But with this phase shift comes an unshakable feeling of alienation as though something so dear to us has been misplaced and lost. Guardiola's football shows us this absence. It demonstrates to us that which is not there and asks us if we have enough humanness left to justify the necessity of the disappeared. And again, the man, you've managed, mentioned a few managers here who I think reflect this. You've mentioned obviously Guardiola, but uh, Postacoglu, as you said, in that, in that old firm game uh, against Rangers where we were seeing rotations and interchanges that just completely blew Rangers out of the water in that first half. An inability for, for Rangers to actually actually follow the game because they were operating in very much a structural guise uh, and and Postacoglu was post-structural in that sense. Marcelo Bielsa is another manager who you and I like to talk a, a, about a lot and he's another manager for whom the um, the idea of of being post-structural is is really important the idea that if you can if you can make your your structure do more than the, the traditional structural uh, movements then you will be able to give yourself an edge which means that you're team will be more than the sum of their parts as well um so do you want to just talk a little bit about about that more post-structural notion that idea that the the problem here precisely that we're seeing is that a lot of managers think in that structural sense right they think in terms of lines and and and, and in terms of shapes and in terms of this is where you even if even if they're not going to fall into that football players are positions into that way of thinking that there's still this some sort of vestigial remainder right of this is how football is played structurally and this is what we adhere to there's certain ideas that that we take for granted and what we're seeing actually is a movement beyond that whereby with players who are less talented you can actually do more because you are you understand the way that the players are structurally related in some sense right yeah this is gets it gets really fascinating because and then I speak from my own perspective. I don't say it's correct or fact, but and from a practitioner's perspective as well, as someone who is responsible for football teams on a football pitch and, and players, there seems to be necessity for structural references in football. And traditionally, that's been you play four four two, you play four three three, whatever it is. You give the structural plan, and that's the formation. And it didn't necessarily change very much between phases of the game, right? Attack and defense and all that. You just, you just, that's what you play. Still, I mean, that's still generally what most, I think, football um, teams play. They have a formation, right? And they generally play that formation. What we're starting to see more is things like different shapes in and out of possession. So we could have different approaches to, let's say, pressing. And maybe you'd be man-oriented in your pressing, but you'd play maybe a zonal attacking uh, system. And in transition, there's a, an appreciation that the, the structure will break down somewhat in, in transition. And you allow that breakdown for those small periods of time and then rearrange, hopefully, in a meaningful way that's good for the team to try to score or defend. And then we can start to see even more. Now, someone like Nagelsmann's maybe, or even actually in Zaghi at uh, Inter, um, we're starting to see differences in actual... Uh, so let's take a, a team in ball possession. They're actually going to have variations in possession, right? So they might have two, three, even four different shapes that they can move between in the possession phase. Now, from my understanding and how I would go about trying to implement that, I would actually teach the, the say it's three, say it's two for, simpl for simplification. I would try to teach the players both systems, actually as if I was teaching them one, you know, the system. So as in like 
positions that are required and the, the different um, dynamics that are afforded in, in different shapes, the different patterns of play that will develop in the shapes. And if you then are able to teach them both shapes, then you can start moving between them because the players are familiar with what they're going, leaving behind and going to, right? They, they can see, and there's certain moves that allow you to change, say, from a 4-3-3 to a 3-4-2-1. You can actually make essentially one or two moves on the board and you have that new shape. It's actually the attacking five almost stays the same, right? You're just actually shifting the base from a 3-2 to a 2-3, if you want to talk in, the, in those terms. So even by one positional movement, you've got a new, actually, a different formation. So it's not, and Bielsa talks about this, how formations are rela related. He's got that lecture <laughs> when he's in Brazil, I think. And it's in trying to follow, I've tried to follow that a few times and I still get lost, like what he's talking about. But I think the general idea is he's saying certain form formations have relationships and you can drift between certain formations actually quite easily. So if you're able to do that with the players and focus your training on that, I think it needs a certain type of player. I think it needs certain resources to do it. It needs lots of time. I don't think you can do it with one training <laughs> session a week and a game on a, a game at the weekend. And if you even if you're then able to get a team that's been together for a period of time, you could add another one and have three, four, and the players are even. And I think Nagelsmann's showing this. Bayern are actually quite difficult to keep track of exactly what shape square quote they're actually playing because the players will drop if you have defensive line midfield line attacking line and certain lines in between they'll drop lines and jump lines in accordance with the situation of the game and how much the and how many um players the opposition are using to press for example and that's that to me is cool right and like theoretically that's what you want right you want the shape shifting thing like t1000 right they're just like but then the thing is i don't know if that's Possibly, like there must be a line to what like the human like uh, capacity right of a, of a team of footballers and I'm not saying this in any kind of like derogatory way but like it must be some kind of limit to the amount of shape shifting uh, that players can handle in a game because they're busy they're playing football do you know what I mean it's like they've got to do their shit and it's not easy to shift formations constantly but maybe as we go forward this will become if if players are taught this from a very young age maybe it will become formless completely but I, I mean, right now at this stage when uh, i find it you know i find it hard just from a practical point of view to try and imagine saying to the players okay right <laughs> we're playing against these you know your four shapes just move to the right one accordingly <laughs> you know i mean it's like it's tough how much of that training will just be done in sort of very much thinking in terms of roles so you tell a player that when this is happening, this is your role, and you do it. And then if all of the players are aware of their roles, then hopefully the theory goes that they then just sort of roll out, everything clicks, and, it, and, and they end up in the right places. Yeah, uh, I think you know having specific roles and specific tasks for players who inhabit different niches on the pitch is absolutely, for me, and again, only my perspective is really, really important for each player to know clearly their roles and their uh, what's expected, right? If you're on the side, you need you to do this. If you're in the middle, deep, you need to do this. If you're in the middle, higher, you need to do this. If you're on the side, higher, you're going to do because each area of the pitch, right, affords different, more uh, desirable actions. We can see that quite clearly. And um, so, yeah, if, if players are all familiar with this, with the the general expectations of what you do when you're in certain areas of the pitch, then yeah, it should be easier for them. But then, to, of course. You, Players are have profiles 
as well. And this is the thing I think I said. What did I uh, something about? Um, you don't need specialization that goes to more generalization. Yeah. And it's like the traditional player profile of like the speedy winger or the big number nine or whatever it is, the kind of the, the stereotype that then needs, if you're going to play this formless system, then you don't really want the players to be like that. You want them to be more generalists and be able to be comfortable on the side, be comfortable in the middle, comfortable even as a, a striker, or even as a defender all over the pitch. So, it's a different profile of player. It's getting away from this kind of specialization. But I don't know if that'll develop all the way. Maybe there'll always be specialists who just arrive and are just so good at playing number nine or so good at playing, I think, whatever position that, you, you know, you don't want them to move around. It's interesting. I think Guardiola is, again, is an interesting one for this in terms of the number nine because he seems to not, at this point anyway, not really care about what anyone thinks about what a number nine or what a striker is. He said, well, I don't, and I think deserve is similar in that. There's other coaches too. Say, I don't really care. I, all my players can score. They just need to get in the right position to score. I, I don't need to be the scoring guy. <laughs> you know, It's like, maybe that again is a moving away from this rigid um, conceptualization of it. So yeah, if you're able to have these generalists who are all familiar with with roles of different areas of the pitch, then it is possible to do because we see it happening. I mean, we're, we are starting to see it happening. So it's, it's, but it's, it's not, uh, it's a different style of coaching, that's for sure. If we, I guess, move from this sort of fairly abstract idea to an even more abstract idea. So we, we talked a little bit about the old firm game um, where we said that Postacoglu was able to cause so many problems for Van Bronckhorst because his team were playing on just a different plane of existence. How much do you think the success of these more fluid approaches depends on the opposition playing in a more traditional structure? And do you think that if the general evolution development of tactical ideas moves to this point where we're talking about fluidity all the way down, how do you then start differentiating between the the teams who are good and the teams who aren't? This is something I think is interesting for Leeds because for, for Leeds, I, I, I think we were... In the championship, we were very much playing above our level and we were able to just crush teams all the time. And what we've seen in the Premier League is that the Leeds have slowly had to mutate their style to a point, I think, where they're much less likely to be playing these sorts of... Not that they're not playing fluidly, but I think that they are much more transitional and they're, they're only able to evince their fluidity in certain moments. So what's your take on like the future of this future? Where do you think it goes next? It's difficult but because... The thing about this, yeah, the, the the Celtic Rangers example is good because that's, to me, okay, we can talk about the quality of the players, but we can generally accept that between Rangers and Celtic, we can say one team has higher quality, but it's not a, it's not a chasm, right? A gap between the quality of the players. We can talk, there are differences, absolute, but we're not talking about some David and Goliath situation. And what we see there is... Uh, tactical approach if you want to call it tactical strategical approach that it really is giving an advantage to Celtic right it's, it's really the, the the fluidity and rotations on the sides between the fullbacks the high number eights and the wingers is causing uh, decisional crises right for the for the Rangers players all over the uh, all over the pitch actually they were getting dragged out of the middle they, they were really confused visibly confused actually at some points they were gesticulating to each other saying you know who's going with who. So perfect example of a fluid approach causing confusion and, and crisis in a traditionally more rigid setting. If then, like you say, the evolution 
evolves, the dialectic evolves, and this becomes the opponent then is going to become more fluid in response to deal with the increased fluidity of the uh, of the other side. Then I suppose the quality of the player comes back into being more prominent because it's not that this radical system is giving you such a big advantage. If you're playing similar systems or similar approaches, then I guess the quality of the player comes back, which probably isn't good. I, I don't know. It is good. It isn't good because then it favors the team with the most money. It seems to me that, that the tactical innovation can... Well, I'm going to contradict myself now because I've just been <laughs> saying that Guardiola is so uh, tactically innovative. The tactical innovation can give the advantage from a coaching perspective, right? From a, if you want to call it top down, you can get into this again. This is, an, I think, an interesting aspect of, of, of coaching and strategy and tactics and football is how much comes from the coach and how much comes from the players. And I think it varies wildly. But I think the systemic advantage, I think, generally comes more from the coach. People might disagree with me. And again, that's the way I see it. So if those systemic advantages are nullified by the opposition adopting something similar, then I guess the, the player quality will then begin to dictate again until then there is another movement in the, ta- in the tactical uh, evolution. Maybe you return and something else happens. So yeah, it's difficult to see, to see, but I would imagine that that would be a reasonable thing to say. Yeah, and one final question on the particulars before we move back to these sort of meta-level questions about the use of philosophy in, in football tactics. But you maybe just hinted towards it there, but do you think that there will be a, a restructuralization process at some point if, if we did get to this sort of ultimately fluid reality? Do you think there would be an advantage to be gained by going back to a more structural approach in those situations? Well, it would seem so, like, theoretically, even if it's just a general forgetting the, of football, of, of of the strengths of structure, which are absolutely undeniable. So, yeah, if there's a general forgetting in the coach education over enough decades, then maybe a return to something like that would, would prove fruitful because teams aren't primed to handle that kind of thing. And it could be a new structure that could be. I think there are, and you know, there are definitely possibilities for different structures. I think we see. Uh, I think of the the team that played it. Almost like a three-six-one, something that's not been tried a lot, but I think could could definitely work. Diamond in the middle, two wing backs, a striker, three at the back. Also, just situational differences. I'm going to go to Zerbi again. Really, the amount of players you start in your own box from a goal kick can be interesting because that acts as a provocation, right? If you're going to position five guys inside your inside your own box, then that structure is going to it's going to provoke a movement from the opposition they're going to push more and more forward so yeah there's definitely structural aspects that can be changed but if it gets to a stage of just just fluidity and nothing else then yeah i think then you, if you introduce something more uh, some structure to it it's going to have a disruptive effect to it theoretically i, I think so let's return to the question i opened the episode with which was is there any overlap between tactical ideas and philosophical ideas? And if there is, what benefit do we get from scrutinizing the philosophical ideas as people interested in tactics? How would you go about answering those questions? Philosophy is a funny word in football, you know, because especially in coaching, I've been through my coaching courses and all this kind of thing. People often ask you, what's your, what's your philosophy? <laughs> and they'll say, oh, uh, we, we like to keep the ball on the ground. You know, pass and move. That's my philosophy. And you're like, it's not really a philosophy. <laughs> to be honest with you, it's just a general statement. So, 
I, I prefer things like game model, game idea. We can get into it rather than philosophy. But I think one of the most important ways I think about it, and let, there is a quote from Ranyuk recently, just when he first came into United. I think he was doing um, the Coach's Voice. It's one of these these um, organizations that are set up for the education of coaches, and he was doing one of these speeches or presentations or whatever. He had like one of those, um, I think, like radio mic things. Quite cool. <laughs> the Britney style mic. Yeah. In a boy band or something. Um, <laughs> I wrote it down somewhere, but it's, uh, I can paraphrase it. And basically he said, he said, what's the role of the coach? The, the role of the coach is to have an idea, a clear idea of the game in your head. And he said, like a video playing in your head of how you want the game to be played. And you must then transfer this idea to... And I think he said the heads, the hearts, the bodies of the players, something like that, which I think is a very interesting quote, right, from this guy, Granik, who's obviously had some success in football. So he's saying that for the coach, and let's, you know, tactics, strategy, these kinds of things, is conceptualized in the mind of the coach and is then transformed or brought into life or manifested into existence through that coach facilitating or transmitting this idea to the players. Now, this seems to me it is a one side. I think it. I think it's more dialect, more dialectical than that. I think there's you're going to see emergent dynamics from your own group of players that are specific to those groups of players in that in, in that place and time that you can harness and go, wow, that's cool that you two can do that together. Let's let's use that. But I do think it's also true that there is this aspect of moving from like the mind. The abstract into the into the real, let's say, from the ideal into the real, and of course these are philosophical, these are loaded right philosophical terms, right? Because I mean, what is that process? What is going on when we're trying to move something from the abstract into the real? Sometimes I find a lot of tactics writing so abstract that I can't I can't visualize and feel how it's going to be transmitted to a group of human beings who have come to play their football training that day, you know, and you have to stand in front of them in some sense, whether it's in a video session or on the pitch or whatever setting it is, one-to-one collective, and actually get this across, right? You have to get this idea from your head to the to the to the reality. And I think some tactics writing is detached. It becomes brain in a jar. And it's like, and it's all good to theorize in this kind of thing. It's an interesting exercise. But you've got to be where the rubber hits the road right it's got to be to be football which is played it's not on football manager football is real and it takes place you know with human beings on a pitch it has to be something that is you can actually uh, facilitate right and I think that's one of the most interesting areas where philosophy and football will intertwine this movement from to and forth from abstract to real, ideal to real. Yeah, but on top of that, I guess you, you, you're clearly taking philosophical ideas and using them as inspiration, right, for, for the way that football tactics can go themselves, right? In, insofar as this, this whole piece to me reads as actually the language of the development of philosophy from this cla- these sort of classical modernist, postmodernist phases actually reads quite nicely as a, a sort of correlate against which you can read the development of tactics, right? Yeah, I mean, you ask, is, is philosophy important in football tactics? I think yes, like, and everything it is, I, you know, if you want to look at things that way. I don't think you have to be necessarily interested in the history of philosophical ideas to be a football coach, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that at all. But 
I think, and what the interest in philosophy, certainly from my perspective, is gives you these much these broader contexts of how our conceptualizations of the world change, right? And and how we can actually the way we think about something, the the way that our thought is formed, is actually instructive because this will affect what the manifestation on the pitch. And we talked about it in terms of like structure rigidity, uh, rigidity against, you know, fluidity, for example. And it's like the understanding of the timeline of the philosophical ideas there absolutely can be mapped on to the pitch and the play quite nicely, really, because you're dealing with systems. When whether it's a system of thought, or a system of epistemology or a system of metaphysics or whatever it is it's a system right and there's a system on the pitch which you're actually using as well so there are correlates you can draw from you know these ideas and especially in coaching as well because if you're interested in something like phenomenology then your approach to coaching is going to be informed by that and the lived the, the immediately embodied experience of the player in your exercises like what is that you're going to be asking those questions. You're going to, be, and you might be asking those questions anyway, without you know being into Marlon Ponty. Right? It doesn't mean it, it puts these things at the forefront of your thinking. So you could be doing an exercise, and you're thinking, well, what is the? I know what the plan is, the abstract plan of this exercise, but what is actually the phenomenological experience of the player in this exercise? And this is what a lot of coaching, they call it skill acquisition science, is based on. These these arguments between should you just do rehearsed patterns of play against zero opponents? It's not uh, phenomenologically real, right, to the game because you're just playing against mannequins. Or do you, should you always make your training against real life opposition to make it real, right, and to to prime the movements that are actually realistic to the game? And this is a huge debate, right? It gets quite nasty sometimes. Um, I, I tend <laughs> to treat it as a spectrum, right, and I'm I'm quite happy to. I'll take the leotard version, right? And just, uh, you know, I, t- I pick and choose quite happily. I, it doesn't bother me to do to go from uh, an unopposed passing pattern exercise straight into, you know, an opposed practice. For example, if I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we can, we can get technical and go into it, but I'm quite happy to, to move to and fro. Though. And again, that's a philosophical move, right? That is like, I'm, I'm referencing like leotard there. I'm happy with like with the multiplicity. That is a philosophical idea that I engage with and am drawn to. So yet, when I approach my coaching practice, I will engage it in a multiplicitous way uh, in terms of like domains of or paradigms of teaching of pedagogy or whatever. I don't feel like I have to be fixed in the one that is evidence-based by the scientific community necessarily. I feel like I can do something that is less research has been done, hard research has been done onto. If I think it works, obviously we're talking within, you know, just, you know, standard... <laughs> ethical grounds or whatever but it's like if i want to do an exercise that hasn't got a stack of evidence supporting the transfer of the skill from the training into the game say i don't care say i can I, i'm okay with that because from the way i see it i see benefit in it and and, and you know you can get criticized for that quite heavily and, and people could say hey you're not you, where's the evidence for that my friend i say well <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't necessarily feel the need to, to say, well, here's the papers, I, uh, here's my citations. I'm like, I don't, I don't see it like that. And again, that's a philosophical position. So I think for a coach, it certainly is instructive. And this was the flip side is if you don't care about any of this stuff, then I guess you can, the danger is you can get, I suppose, too drawn into one school. That would be my concern. You get convinced of something by the, the proponents of a certain paradigm or domain. And you think, well, that's the way it has to be done because 
you know, such and such says so. So that's certainly something that I feel has been useful to me as a coach. What are we talking about? Tactics. No. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very much like you're saying that coaches need external inspiration then as, as a as a means to, to stay fresh and to and to have better ways of conceptualizing what they're doing beyond just a sort of very singular way of approaching things. Yeah, I think and I think this is something that I get from Bielsa as well and others is he, Bielsa seems to talk a lot about authenticity as an idea. And for me, this seems to be like the most important aspect almost of coaching is to is to be able to actually we can link authenticity to something like taste. It's like, you know, I like the food I like, I like the music I like, I like the films I like. I dress the way I do because I, I want to dress that way. And this is taste, right? It's like, it's not correct <laughs> to like that food more than the other food. But, and it comes to putting across your game idea or your game model, whatever it is, your footballing philosophy. I think it's important that it is reflective of your own taste, right? Rather than just a regurgitation of some kind of standard norm practice or you know you know accepted wisdom etc but i think that's very di- it's it's difficult for a coach to to do that because it's uh, you're yeah you know, you're being uh, beset on all sides by narratives of this is how you should do it this is what a coach does this is how they do it. i'm sure players are it's not it's it's, it's it's you know it's not just coaches but that idea of trying to be authentic and bringing something that is actually real to you into your football and that, that obviously manifests in tactics and strategies and all these kinds of things, I think is, for me, the most important thing to keep as a guiding principle anyway. Well, Jamie, it's been a real pleasure having you on today. Before we finish, I should just say that next week's episode will be with Om Arvind, the Real Madrid expert, and we'll be focusing on the question of how tactics function at elite clubs in particular. As always, do keep recommending this podcast to people who you think would enjoy it. Jamie, what is the best way for our listeners to find the stuff that you're putting out? They can follow on Twitter at sterling under slash J and the articles are all on Medium, my Medium, which is linked on my Twitter. So that's the easiest way to do it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jamie. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, John. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.